so much, Beck. <coughs> Why don't I pray for us before we start? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that it works, that uh, by it we are changed and transformed to be more like Christ. And so we ask that you would be with us tonight as we look at this chapter in James uh, and that you would be doing your work in our lives. Amen. Amen. I want to start by telling you about a girl who I went to primary school with. Uh, for the sake of the story, uh, I'm going to call her Joanna. Joanna uh, was a pretty quiet and reserved girl. And uh, she, was, she came from what I can only describe as being a disadvantaged home. So she lived with her dad and her sister. I don't really know what happened to her mum. Uh, she didn't really ever talk about her mum. Uh, it was pretty common knowledge that she had learning difficulties. So even uh, at primary school, it was obvious because she often would be uh, taken out of the classroom to have extra kind of support classes. Uh, and doing well at school was obviously then something that was quite difficult for her. She had really, really bad eczema. Um, and so as you can imagine, being a small girl in a primary school, she was really badly bullied because of how she looked. She didn't really have any good friends. Um, so I can't think of any kids who really were her friend, uh, but I can think about people who looked out for her uh, and did their best to try to help her when the bullying was really bad, um, or maybe just tried to include her when they could see that she was particularly lonely. I suspect that it goes without saying that school was a really difficult time for Joanna. On one particular occasion, uh, around Christmas time, I remember Joanna coming to school with gifts for some of the, uh, the kids in her class who she deemed to be her friend, uh, and I was one of them. And I can still remember to this day standing uh, under the trees near Bottom Oval and Joanna handing us these gifts. They were wrapped in newspaper and inside were two or three Babysitter's Club books uh, that had the price tag still on them, 20 cents, 50 cents. And the pages were yellowed and dog-eared and the cover was well-worn. As a 10-year-old, I couldn't think of a worse present. Second-hand books wrapped in newspaper were not something that I deemed to be a Christmas gift. I didn't want anyone to know that she had given them to me. I felt awkward and embarrassed that Joanna had given me this gift. Obviously, looking back now, I realised that I couldn't possibly comprehend the extraordinary lengths that Joanna had gone in order to give me this gift. There are certain things that privileged 10-year-old Ella had no idea about. I had no idea of domestic violence. I had no idea of financial hardship. I had no idea of the kind of resilience that a child who's been neglected might need to muster in order to persevere through life. 10-year-old Ella holding this gift was immature and incredibly prejudiced. 
And just like when I returned home from school that day, my mum needed to gently reprimand me in order for me to fathom the generosity that Joanna had actually shown. As we study God's word tonight, looking at James chapter 2, we will confront our spiritual immaturity head on. In this chapter, James highlights that when we act with favouritism, we display a faith that does not depend on God. Tonight, we'll continue to think about how as God's people, we are called to act, to think about what real faith looks like, how it can be seen. James argues that the mark of genuine Christian faith is inclined towards the needy and not away from them. So last week, Kylie explained how living with genuine faith looks like living in Downey Uptown. Downey Uptown, she said, is recognising that God desires his people to live and look differently from the world around them. Specifically, we looked at how we are to view our suffering both as something to expect and something that we should endure joyfully. We do this because we know that trials are a means by which we grow in maturity and have our faith refined. Ultimately, Kylie explained that the promised crown of life stored up for us in heaven means that what we experience here and now, even though it's difficult and hard, is not the end of our story. In chapter 1, James has introduced the concept of consistency, of single-mindedness as being fundamental to how Christians are to think and to live. Look with me again at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James says that double-mindedness and doubting leads to instability. And he sees this as a problem. Remember how Kylie helpfully explained for us that the doubt James is talking about here is not doubt like having questions about our faith or having questions about God, but rather the doubt that James is talking about is about not being fully on board with God and the commands that he has for how we live. It's doubt which means that we live with a foot in both camps, a foot in the camp of the world and a foot in the camp of God. James says genuine faith means that our feet are firmly planted in God's camp. In fact, he says it's ludicrous to think that we can live with a foot in the world's camp because to live with a foot in the world's camp means that we're on a team that is at war with God. So what we see now in this chapter, chapter 2, is James taking this idea of unstable or double-minded thinking from abstract or theoretical to practical. As he starts, he shows to show us the distinct and obvious ways that this analysis of Christian life is lived out. 
If we were to talk about church together, and I was to ask you about some of the actions that we see at church that define genuine Christian faith, I wonder what things we might come up with together. Perhaps we might talk about attending church regularly or Bible study regularly. Maybe we might say, oh, it's really good and it's a really good indication of genuine faith if you're involved in some form of ministry. So helping out with kids' church or being involved in the music team. In the book of James, what we realise is that while these things are good things, they're just means to an end. And that end is our transformation, our being made more like Christ. What James says is that genuine faith is not seen simply when people can give all the right answers or pray the right prayers. It's not just seen in words, but in actions too. True Christians, for want of a better phrase, walk the talk with a controlled tongue, with a concern for the needy and helpless, and by practical holiness, which resists the corruption and the pollution of the the culture around them. These are the three marks which dominate James's letter. In the first seven verses of chapter 2, James then presents us with a really challenging test case. Let's have a look at these verses again together. James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, oh, stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my bro- beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? James starts by instructing, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Even in this opening statement, James wants us to understand that as we hold onto our faith, We are to show no partiality. What he expects is that the Christian will understand who Jesus Christ is and how, as a result, they will understand to whom the glory belongs. And it's not us. Rather, glory belongs to Jesus because Jesus is the Lord of glory. What this means is that we will lay aside our own glory, our desire for recognition and praise, in order to be the means by which others might come to know Christ. And this is at the heart of the Christian faith because this is actually precisely what Jesus does, isn't it? As followers of Jesus, we are to take his example and live it in our lives We know that Jesus didn't cringe at touching dirty sinners and the poor and outcast. 
the people the world says are worth very little, so we must not cringe or shy away from them either. In fact, embracing the most unlikely people is precisely what Jesus loves and came to do. He cannot bear to hold back his love for the outcast and our love must be evident in the same way because we don't hold it back either. So then why don't we judge or act with favouritism? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus commands his hearers, do not judge lest you be judged. We don't judge or show favouritism simply because it's frowned upon or gently discouraged but because we are commanded not to. But more than this, James actually says that we don't show favouritism because it's evil. James says, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing while you say to the poor person, you stand over there, you are making a distinction between yourself and them and have become a judge with evil thoughts. At the heart of favouritism, We're asking a fundamental question. We're not asking, what can I give? But we're asking, what can I get? Asking, what's in this for me? And this is the way that the world operates, right? The Christian who behaves like this demonstrates not only double-minded thinking, but also a lack of faith. The world says, take Get what you can and look after yourself. And living like this actually shows that you don't have any dependence on God. It shows that you don't trust in him for your every need. It says, I better just store up what I can, what I can get, make sure I'm nice and comfortable, just in case God actually doesn't come through with what he's promised me. If I can get what I need, then I don't need anyone but myself and like my attitude towards Joanna the favoritism James talks about here reflects an attitude that we all have towards people but the example that he gives this example between the rich and the poor it's just one expression of it I want to suggest for us here and now today living in Heavensburg amongst some of the most stunning scenery in our state that it's actually increasingly difficult for us to judge between rich and poor, isn't it? While you might not feel like you're wealthy, while there might be things that you still want, you know that there are people out there in our city, in our country, even in the world, who have it a hell of a lot worse off than you. So what about when we avoid certain people because they make us feel awkward? What about our dislike of people who are hard work? What about when we say, there's no one my age there? Or, I just don't actually connect with those people? What about how we want to fit in with the people around us? What about how we even just use the expression, there's such good value to describe people? 
Whenever we look over the shoulder of the person that is boring, awkward or difficult in order to find someone more interesting to speak with or to spend our time with, we're acting with favouritism. But this kind of favouritism is the kind of favouritism that generally we turn a blind eye to or sometimes we encourage it and permit it. The question then that James wants us to ask is, are you prepared to lay aside your glory in order to see the spiritual logic of God's perspective and reconsider the awkward and difficult people as being the very people that God is calling you to love and care for. The people you find difficult are the ones that he's asking you to love. Essentially, what James is striking at is how favouritism says that person is worth more, but that person is worth less. And by acting in this way, it shows the horrendous and insidious and sick nature of our heart because it weighs the worth of one person's soul as being worth more than somebody else's. And it does it on the basis of worldly, superficial means. When Atticus was about four years old, uh, he was still at home. Um, He wasn't at school yet. He was really, really interested in knowing all about my favourite things. I would have to tell him about my favourite pets, my favourite cars, my favourite everything. It just felt like constantly asking me about my favourite things. I'm not sure if it was just him trying to get to know me. Not sure. Anyway, one time he said to me, Mum, what's your favourite job? And I took the opportunity. I thought, oh, what a great opportunity and to actually try to mean this. When I said to him, being your mum is my favourite job. <laughs> and he looked at me and looked incredibly confused and rephrased his question and said to me, Mum, what's your favourite job that's actually hard work? (laughs) (laughs) Clearly our obsession then with favouritism is not just something that's ingrained in our culture, but it's actually ingrained in who we are as human beings as well. And James wants us to remember Downey Uptown, to remember that in God's kingdom, there must be a reversal of our priorities. We are to strive for the very priorities that are at the heart of God. Look with me again at verses 18 to thir- 8 sorry, to 13. If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Living in the new covenant of Christ, being transformed into his likeness, means we are called to act in love towards our neighbour. Human nature dictates that the wealthier the person, the more they tend to look down on the poor. We know this, right? Because in the world, the rich get rich, but the poor get poorer. There's a hierarchy to how society is ordered. And without realising it, sometimes we can incorrectly assume that Jesus must operate on this same hierarchical order. That as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he too must have difficulty drawing near to the despicable and unclean, to the lowly of society. But according to the Old Testament law, he was actually the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. Just think about it. Whatever things cause us to cringe, we who are actually naturally unclean and fallen would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot fathom, actually, the sheer purity, holiness and cleanness of Jesus' heart and mind. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? He moved towards them. So we must pay attention to the God that the Bible speaks of because our natural intuition is to create a God who operates as we do, who behaves like us. So therefore he must look down on the poor and lowly. But this is a God without mercy. The God of the Bible is one who moves towards the broken and outcast, a God who is love and is so moved to compassion and mercy that he sends his son to die on the cross to save all who are lost. So snobbery then is not just unfortunate but sinful. Notice in verse 10 the danger of picking and choosing which part of the law we obey. If you fail to obey one point, James says, then you're guilty of all of it. Selective obedience to a command, that is, to love some people, but not all people, is actually disobedience to God. It's living with a foot in both camps. Celebrity or acting with favouritism towards the right popular people in church makes us no different to the culture around us, and it shows double-minded thinking. But there is hope. James tells us, because there is mercy. In verse 13, we see that mercy triumphs over judgment. Those who do not show mercy never receive it themselves because their very lack of mercy towards others is an indication that they've actually never properly received the gospel. Rather, the proof that someone has been captivated by God's mercy to them in Christ is that they display it to others. So genuine faith acts with mercy to others. And here's where the rubber really hits the road for James. Look with me at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. Deedless Christianity is dead Christianity. In the same way that faith that has no impact on behaviour is not authentic faith. Um, In the months following uh, my husband Matt's accident, we saw a lot, a lot of specialists and surgeons. And I can remember sitting in the office uh, of one particular surgeon really early on in the piece. uh, We were at Sydney Eye Hospital and we'd just been sort of referred to a doctor. Um, And Matt came into the office, I was with him, and he was still bandaged and bruised from his accident. He sat down in front of the surgeon's desk. And I just remember this surgeon, his eyes kind of just got wider and wider as he's looking at just how bad it was. Um, And I remember him saying, "Um, perhaps you could just tell me what you've already had done and maybe how I could help you. It was really apparent, simply based on the way that this guy acted, that he wasn't going to be able to help Matt. He just didn't have the experience. And it's really easy, isn't it, for us to see when people are bunging it on because of the way they act or because of their lack of actions. So they can say something, but then they can't demonstrate it for us. In Australia, it doesn't cost us much for us to say that we're Christians does it? It's as simple as just saying it out loud or checking a box on a form. Maybe we might comment on a social media post. But real faith is costly. It can make us feel embarrassed or vulnerable. It can mean we aren't as popular or as well-liked as we might otherwise be. It can mean people think that we're crazy. Real, genuine, God-honouring Christian living is sacrificial. It's going to cost us something. And there's no other way to see it than in our actions. Faith is not simply an attitude or thought. Rather, it involves expressing through action our dependence, thankfulness and love for Jesus and what he has done for us. Just think for a moment about the story of the... um, paralyzed man who's lowered through the roof in the gospel of Luke the man's friends in that story if you pay attention to it are described as going to extraordinary lengths to get the paralyzed man to see Jesus so in Luke chapter 5 verse verse 19 we read how um, they try to get him into the room which is chock-a-block full of people trying to see Jesus uh, and there's no way that they can get him in he's on a bed And so instead, they climb onto the top of the roof. Like, just think, I've been thinking about it. He's on a bed. They've got to get him up, like, onto a roof. I don't know if there are stairs. I don't know. But they've got him onto the roof. They figure out how to get a hole big enough for him to get through. And then they lower him down so that he's on the floor right at Jesus' feet. And Luke tells us, That when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their faith, and because of it, he forgives their sins. Jesus saw their faith, he saw it in action. It was a visible thing. And all true faith is 
It is not just an invisible way of thinking about God, but something seen by how we act. So if your faith is merely something that you profess from your lips a long time ago, and it's not something that you're acting out now, I want you to stop and consider this. Those of you who feel like maybe your theology is just all sorted in your head and you can say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Even the demons believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They believe and they shudder. Look with me again at verse 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Profession of faith without deeds is merely hot air. While this kind of faith understands who God is, the very fact that there is no transformation of behaviour means that it is the same as what the demons believe. Real faith is not merely sentimental, wishing someone well while doing nothing, and it is not merely creedal, affirming something to be true that makes no difference to how we live. Such things may be something... But James wants to be clear that they are not Christianity and that this kind of faith doesn't save. James has a deep disturbance by a faith that has no consequence for life. And we should be too. We are called to act with compassion. We are called to be caring. We are called to love even those who hate and despise us. We are called to live out our faith in ways that can be seen by others. And we are called to follow Jesus, not only by professing him to be the Lord of our life, but in everything that we do, in word and deed, with the whole of our lives, for his honour and glory. Why don't I pray? Lord, we admit with shame that we strive for comfort far more than we strive after a character transformed in Christ-likeness. Help us, we pray, to be women who not only profess your lordship, but in our actions show you to be the rightful ruler and king of our lives. Help us to lay aside our glory so that your glory might be seen. And thank you so much for Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you that he did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but that laying aside his glory, he moved towards us and all who are broken and lost, that we might know salvation and the joy of eternity in your presence. We ask that this knowledge would motivate us today and always to run the race set before us, regardless of the trials we might encounter along the way. That in persevering, we might bring glory and honour to you. Amen.